You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simont. I'm a game study scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Today's show is going to be all about 9-11 because the day when we publish it is also going to be September 11th. Yes, a very recognizable date and something that I think certainly changed America. But I think, Stefan, as I've talked to you and as I've talked to other people from around the world, I mean, it really, it was a, I was very young when it happened. So obviously I, I saw it through an American lens, but it was a very world affecting event. Where were you when 9-11 happened? Because I know that everyone remembers where they were and what they did when it happened. I was in, I was in class. I was in elementary school. And I remember very vividly, the principal came on the intercom and just said, clearly he didn't know what to say. So he just said, students, school is canceled for today. The school buses will be coming to pick you up and take you home. If your parents are here or if your parents are nearby, they've been called, they'll come to get you. So in retrospect, very calm and kind of impressive, but, you know, we just thought it was a day off school. And then I went home. I remember my mom saying that my grandfather had called her and said, turn on the TV, something has happened. And she said, what channel? And she, he said, it doesn't matter. And that was a, I remember her saying that, that was a big deal. And then we just watched, we watched TV for the rest of the day, basically. Yeah, because it was a live broadcast on all channels. And it, it was the same in Germany. This was a, an event that radiated immediately across the entire globe. So I was on a school field trip and we were in our huts, I think, in these like wooden huts. And then all the teachers came around and they, they gathered us all. And they said, like, you have to all come into the main area. Something happened. Very similar to how it happened with you. And once we were all summoned there, they just said, like, we need to, we should watch some TV together because something terrible has happened in the US. And then we watched the broadcast also for the entire evening. And it was, there was such a tremendous emotional impact, even to people who had well, clearly were too young to properly comprehend what was going on and people that were on the other side of the globe, the people just felt like moved to tears at the sight of what was happening, you know? I think it's a, it's a number of things because I remember, you know, for it to have happened in New York City, which in a lot of ways is the heart of America, I think. I think globally, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think when people think of America, they think of maybe New York and L.A., I would think. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Because everyone knows New York from movies, from television. Everyone is aware of, everyone has an idea of what New York looks like. Right. And I think, yeah, there was something about that where it kind of, honestly, it was the last time in my memory that it felt like America, which is a huge country, felt like one country right after that because it was it was so visceral and so affecting and i think as i got older i realized how terrified obviously my parents must have been but then i also think how terrified the rest of the world must have been where the idea must have just been i suppose world war 3 is happening then <laughs> yeah it was very clear at an instant it was clear that this is going to change the world for good we're, there's no way back into how things previously were well and that's that's the real kicker about it is that I do feel like the world is pre 9-11 and post 9-11 at this point. If you look historically, you can tell in, in the way that we act and the way that we travel and in a lot of what we're going to be talking about today in our media and what we were preoccupied with. It has changed so much also in video game culture, which is going to be the subject of today. We're going to talk about how 9-11 impacted gaming culture in general how games that had been already in production were altered following the attacks, and how several games have been made that specifically, sometimes on a more serious level, sometimes on a more, I don't know, mocking level or satirical level, you could say, engage with 9-11. So we're covering a broad range of subjects revolving around 9-11, but before we get into that, we have two, two things that we really need to address briefly. The first one is that next week, on a completely different matter, is our 50th episode, our 50th wow. anniversary. <laughs> We've been podcasting for such a long time already, it doesn't even feel like it. It feels no. like we're just getting started. And we are. <laughs> Stay tuned. 
Now, what we're going to do, we're going to play a little game of would you rather. That means Dan and me, we're going to answer questions that have the form of would you rather this or that. And we would like you out there to participate because we want to celebrate this 50th anniversary together. You can submit your would you rather questions on studyingpixels.com slash contact, or you can just reach out on social media, right? We can, you can tweet at us, you can reach us on Instagram, even on LinkedIn by now. So wherever you are comfortable, most comfortable with, just go ahead and send us your would you rather questions. And the second thing we need to briefly bring to your attention is that, of course, Studying Pixels is a free show and we need some help to make it happen. If you want to do that, then you can get Studying Pixels Plus, where you will receive all of our episodes entirely ad-free. You'll get a lovely sticker and monthly plus episodes. I think this month now, is it a new month? Yes, it is. It's Unbelievable. September. Yeah. <laughs> and we've just released, this week we've released our new plus episode, which is about logical and rhetorical fallacies, where we go through all kinds of things, such as the straw man argument, but also more intricate logical fallacies that you should watch out for in academic argumentation, but also in any kind of discourse. If you're curious about that and want to help us make this show happen, then you can go to studyingpixels.com plus to find out more. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now, before we get into the nitty gritty of video games, we want to briefly establish what we are talking about when we're talking about 9-11 because there might be people who are a bit younger listening to this, or there might be people who are profoundly disinterested and think about like, well, 9-11, I've heard about it, but who knows really? So we are talking about four concerted terrorist attacks that all fall under this label of 9-11 that were orchestrated by the radical Islamist group Al-Qaeda. And there were 19 attackers in total that hijacked four commercial airplanes on September 11th, 2001. Now, one of these planes actually crashed into a field in Pennsylvania because the passengers on that airplane, they revolted and caused it to crash into this field. Another one crashed into the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. And two more, and those are the most notable ones, crashed into the iconic twin towers of the World Trade Center in New York City. I believe that the one that it was United Flight 93 that was diverted into the field. I believe that was headed either for Congress or for the White House. I mean, this was a majorly planned attack on American government and business. I mean, really, you could make the argument that it was an attack on Western capitalism. Hitting the Twin Towers was very deliberate in that. Yeah, you could say so. And it was also a completely different class of terrorism than that that we are contemporarily confronted with. Because we know that from recent years, terrorism has changed significantly, moving away from these gigantic orchestrated attacks that involve like airplanes. And it's very difficult to hijack an airplane, especially after 9-11, because a lot of regulations were even tightened, more so than they had already been. And nowadays, it's a lot more common for terrorist attacks to happen on a smaller scale, such as iconic terrorist attack from recent years in Germany, someone just driving a truck into a Christmas market, for example. Something that's very blunt, very sudden, and that's over very quickly. That's basically how contemporary terrorism works. So 9-11 is really not just a different 
time, really, that we're talking about, but it's also different, entirely different class of terrorism. Absolutely. And it was, if I remember, too, all of the reporting around it, I mean, to, to kind of put you in the headspace of now we're post 9-11 where I think people have an underlying worry of this kind of thing all the time. But back then, when the first plane hit the first tower, everybody thought it was just an accident. Everyone thought that it was the pilot had made a mistake, a terrible mistake. And it wasn't until the second plane hit that people got really scared. And, oh, this is, this is deliberate. We are under attack. That's this kind of notion that immediately sets in. And it was in regards to its casualties and the effect that it had, it was indeed a very effective attack. It was the deadliest terrorist attack in world history, at least it's classed as such. On that day, 2,996 people died, including the attackers, and over 6,000 people were injured. There were a plethora of motives that were indicated afterwards. We can't go into that too much, but it was all circling around the U.S. launching attacks against Muslims and operating against Muslims and uh, Islam. And uh, that's why Al-Qaeda saw itself justified to launch such an attack. And as we indicated in our conversation so far, it was also a very standout moment in world history because it was so clearly caught on television. We mentioned already how we were immediately summoned to watch TV and to see these images because once the first plane had crashed into the World Trade Center, all TV cameras were brought in and were filming the towers and filming how one of these towers was burning already. And so it was very clear when the second plane came in and the whole world basically saw what happened, which is a tremendous shockwave that radiates throughout popular consciousness, you could say. Absolutely. And I think we've lived past it for so long. I mean, we're, we're 20 years after it at this point, which, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, is not a very long time, but it's most of our lifetime, Stefan, right? So I think that it's easy to kind of take for granted that this happened. But I mean, really picture everyone in the world watching that footage and seeing the second plane hit it live. What a nightmare, you know? And I think I was, I didn't have that experience because I was, I was a kid. I was in school. So I didn't have that. But I, I definitely remember the aftermath. And I can only think just, you know, I remember when, when the COVID pandemic started, I had this moment where it was a kind of a, a growing up moment where I realized that my parents don't know anything more about this than I do. And I can only imagine how they felt when this happened. You know, it was just the world coming crashing down. Very, very scary stuff. I think it also feels so especially impactful because if we want to abstract from it a little bit, we have to say that the US might at least have felt for quite a while almost impenetrable. Because the areas in the world where wars were going on and wars that the U.S. was involved in as well, those were all remote places. Those were places that maybe you would see on TV, such as it happened in the Vietnam War, which also changed public attitude significantly. But really, basically, war is... That happens in other places, in other parts of the world. And suddenly, there was this immediate realization that the U.S., as a country, is vulnerable, that it can be attacked, and it can be attacked on such a major scale that it basically is turned, at least for that time and for that area, basically into a war zone. Well, and, you know, you're so right, and obviously it kicked off the never-ending uh, Iraq war and the war in the Middle East that America has only kind of now started to pull out of with, with Biden pulling out. But, I mean, if you think about it, the only other time that America had really been attacked like this was Pearl Harbor. And even then, it was the only frame of reference that Americans had was, well, we went to war after that. So obviously, that was on everybody's consciousness. And I think it, it, affected, it affected people in a way that I don't think Pearl Harbor did, just because Pearl Harbor's coverage wasn't as widespread, like you said, with the TV coverage as 9-11 was. Yeah, also an important distinguishing factor is that Pearl Harbor was a military target, whereas the World Trade Center, that was a civilian target. There were no soldiers anywhere around. And But you're totally right in that the war on terror that ensued afterwards, that had also a profound impact on video games. Because 
really military shooters, and now we're coming to the general impact on video game culture, shifted their gaze away from things like, you know, Russia as the bad guy, and focused a lot more on the Middle East, the evil character of the Islamic radicalist, you know? That was something that was really brought into existence in video games once this kind of term of the axis of evil was coined by George W. Bush, right? This axis yep. of evil. <laughs> it, was, it was a very clear disparity. We, and I'm saying we as the Americans, we are the good guys, or we the West, we are the good guys, and then there are these Muslims, they are the bad guys, and we need to fight against them. And so a stereotype was maybe not born, but it re-emerged in a much more prominent fashion than ever before. Absolutely. I think, yeah, re recontextualized. Recontextualized. Because you're right, before this, I think it was the Russians that were the American enemy. And I think probably before that, <laughs> unfortunately, I say to you, it was the Germans and the Japanese. Yes. <laughs> prior to that. So maybe the Vietnamese or the Koreans directly before that, but... Exactly. Yeah, the Koreans, the Chinese, the Russians, also like always somewhere east. <laughs> but yeah. then the, the focus clearly shifted also to this religious axis and this ethnic axis. That was the big change, I think, because, yeah, if you think about like Russian terrorists or Russian spies in James Bond movies or in, you know, the, the, the action movies of the 80s and early 90s, there wasn't this, I want to say, there wasn't this level of hatred infused in the uh, the enemy making that came about in the early 2000s and the the 2010s even and i think that yeah it was a definite shift and i mean i i'm gonna bring this up stefan do you remember when call of duty was just like hey uh we made a world war one game <laughs> you know <laughs> and it had no real political import past just a historical look at a war that you could partake in yeah and the same was for for battlefield and for Medal of Honor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there was really a vast range of historical military shooters that all kind of were circulating around World War II, some around World War I. But um, this kind of focus of the contemporary conflict is something that happens in the Middle East, including the antagonists, including the settings that are employed. And of course, the kind of characterization of this is basically the birthplace of evil. This is ultimate evil. That's what you really need to have a military shooter in which you can recklessly kill enemies. What you need is you need to contextualize them as pure evil. And that's exactly the kind of narrative that was employed post 9-11. Yeah. What was insidious about it was the difference that we're talking about here. I think Americans were looking for an outlet for that to express the fear and the anger. And I think that just kind of fed into itself to the point where, I mean, we still see you know, Middle Eastern terrorists as the enemy in video. I mean, Counter-Strike, isn't it? The antagonists are just the terrorists. Yes. And it's very coded. So there's a lot of this that still persists to this day just because of how impactful this event was. It also coined other kinds of cultural narratives that are very prominent in video games, such as the preemptive strike. Oh, yeah. Because you just mentioned the profound fear that ensued after 9-11. And that would obviously express itself in this idea of we must attack before they do because we know what happens when they do. So we basically go in there and we basically uh, bomb the country to shambles and then we're safe. So it was basically like this notion of uh, such a profound fear that takes a country in its chokehold and seems to justify any kind of preemptive action against another country. Yes, the ends justify the means was a, <laughs> this isn't a video game but i think of the show 24 did you ever watch that yes one? 24 classic spy action thing yes and so very much jack bauer is going to do whatever he needs to protect america it yes. was i think <laughs> looking back on it i think it was earnest but if you read it as satirical it's just as powerful mm. so i think there's a lot of a lot of that in video games as well where you know, it was, whether conscious or not, I think early on in the early 2000s, I think it was very subconscious that this happened because it was just how everybody was thinking about everything. And maybe you would get some commentary from a Kojima who would say, hey, America's kind of weird right now. <laughs> but apart from that, I think it just kind of permeated how video games were created. Mm, I, I think so too. I think that especially in the early days after 9-11, 
there was not this conscious engagement with like, oh, we're going to make a game about this and then people are going to love it. But it was more that that was just what felt right. That was the attitude that just pervaded video game culture. And you compared it to 24, which I think is a really great comparison because there you also have this kind of idea of there's a timer running out. We need to act now and we need to do everything we can. And that includes we need to overstep ethical boundaries. We need to, we can legitimately violate human rights because we're going to prevent something that is way worse, which is a gigantic terrorist attack that's planned and that's going to happen soon. And we also have to justify sacrificing our own people and even ourselves, the soldiers as well as the civilians. If you think of Call of Duty, I think there are several of them. I'm not sure. I haven't played that many, I must say. But I think there are several of them where a character sacrifices themselves for the country, including the infamous scene at the end of uh, Modern Warfare, Modern Warfare 2, where a nuclear bomb is launched and the character, the protagonist, basically consumed in the blast. I think as the religious scholar in me is coming out, because you mentioned how it was so religiously and ethnically targeted. And I think that a natural consequence of that was that so if you think about soldiers in world war ii which i think is the last great war in everybody's consciousness before modern modern warfare to to coin their term right (laughs) i think there was a sense of duty and a sense of patriotism definitely on all sides i think but there's a tinge to media after 9 11 where the main character in a video game is specifically martyred in a religious sense it's not just protecting people, protecting country. It's some divine feeling of your purpose is greater than just being a soldier. You're actually combating this negative religious attack that is going to be dis- that's going to be so destructive, right? So, in a biblical sense, these these characters became martyrs in a way that I I don't think we really paid attention to prior to this Mm. obviously there was the you know the main character sacrifices him or herself but it didn't feel quite so tinged (laughs) as as these later games did quite possibly i think it also was strongly infused by this notion of we are operating under the will of god yes this was a notion that was obviously brought forth by radical islamist terrorists but also by the U.S. American government, a religiously justified war to a certain degree when, like George Bush, there was definitely this kind of utterance and this kind of justification of saying, like, we are acting with the will of God. God is guiding our hand in this war, and we are doing the right thing. So really, by defending your country and by sacrificing yourself for your country, you would reach a sort of religious ascension that is beyond just simply the realm of current reality you could say right it's not the u.s's directive it's god's directive to do this and uh, that changes a whole lot of things (laughs) when you start talking that way that's really how things are boiling over right that's really when things get very wild and contributing to that was also the fact that aesthetically warfare had changed over time you mentioned how the second world war was aesthetically a completely different experience where we know like film still, uh, we know stills and we know like documentary films or something like that, where we see like tanks rolling around. But really, when we talk about the war on terror that ensued in the context of 9 11, we're talking about things like drone warfare. We're talking about a level of abstraction that lends itself for video game representations. Because really, what military shooters started to do, increasingly so, is implement sequences where you would take control of a drone and where you would have an abstracted military perspective, where people seem to be like just dots white or colored dots on a map, and you click on them and then you see like a little, and then they're gone, right? This is a sequence that has been employed in so many military shooters, and it's strongly informed by the aesthetic of post-9-11 warfare. And that's not even getting into all of the direct military influence on video games where there would be, I know we've talked about this before, the military presence at games conventions, basically saying, hey, you know, what you're doing is not so different from what we're doing. I'm struck by the, I think it's the opening cutscene from Metal Gear Solid 4 where Snake says war has changed and it's an endless series of proxy battles where no one is actually on the battlefield. And of course, 
there are soldiers on the battlefield doing real things. But I think when we think of, quote, modern warfare, we do think of the drones and really kind of piloting things like you would in a video game, which is a little strange, <laughs> to say the least. This is actually, if I might jump ahead a little bit, if we look into games that have been made that directly address 9-11, then this is something that's already been picked up by video games directly. There's a title called Unmanned. It's been developed by Mola Industria in 2012. And in Unmanned, this is like a flash game. You play as a drone pilot and you take control of this, like your job. You're piloting a drone and you're killing quote-unquote terrorists by just basically clicking on them. And they parallel this with sequences where you go home and where you then, for example, play video games with your son. Video games that are inspired by Call of Duty. So they're paralleling this kind of idea of where is the difference, really, except for the obvious fact that there's an actual target at the end of it. But aesthetically, video games and warfare are now closer to each other than they have ever been before. I'm struck by a game like Spec Ops The Line, which is very deliberately making this comparison in a way that it uses themes. It's based on the, the novel Heart of Darkness that is all about the horrors of war anyway, but it brings it to the forefront in the sense that, you know, how we as people who play games take orders, take things for granted, do things without thinking about consequence. There is a lot of overlap where you can very easily talk yourself into these things, which is, I think, something that might not have happened had war not evolved as it did. There's also a sequence in Spec Ops The Line about white phosphorus, right? Where you yes. you launch basically a, an a, attack of white phosphorus on what you assume to be military targets. Turns out they're not. They employ the sequence in a typical fashion as any other kind of military game would do it. You get into this view of a drone and you click on targets and then they disappear. And then when you're done, it's like, well, wonderful, I'm done. But then what happens is they drag you through that area so that you walk slowly and you can't run through that area and they make you see the casualties that you have caused to kind of bring this abstracted drone view, which is which is very gamey, to a visceral level, which is more closely related to what we've seen in the case of Vietnam, where people saw Vietnam on TV and were like, no, this is actually not what we wanted. Yeah, the true horrors of war, the outcomes, the consequences, just, as you say, you can't run through it. You have to really walk and take it all in. There's also another fantastic serious game that spawned in the context of 9-11. And not that long afterwards, it's called September 12th. Many people might know it already. It's by News Gaming. It came out in 2003. And it was spearheaded by someone who is familiar to people who listen to the show regularly which is Gonzalo Frasca. We did a reading episode on his text, Simulation versus Narrative, and he does not only write texts about video games, but he also makes video games. And in this case, he made a browser game, September 12th, where you click on people, clearly Middle Eastern coded people, and by clicking on them, by, well, shooting them, you could say, or attacking them, you are turning them into terrorists. So what you're doing in September 12th is, with every attack that you launch to prevent the spread of terrorism, you are spreading more terrorism. And the point that this makes is, of course, that by launching an attack such as the War on Terror, what you do is you spawn more hatred against the US. You spawn more people that are dislocated from their families that have lost everything in military attacks and would then be, again be willing to fight against the U.S. So you kind of are making your own enemies. I think really commendable, too, that this was this was in 2003. So this was, yeah. I mean, realistically, pretty directly after this happened. And I think to, to make this game that so clearly hit on something that, was, that Frasca saw happening, I think is really, and not prescient, because it's not happening first, but very of the time in a way that not a lot of games at the time did. It must have been really the situation that Frasca and maybe a couple of other people who were involved saw what happened, saw how the war on terror was launched, because that was really, I think, pretty much the next day after 9-11. Yes. It was September 12th, yeah. Yeah, September 12th. And then immediately started making that game. It's a powerful message, because I think at the time, people weren't looking 
for philosophy and deep readings of what was happening to the soul of America <laughs> at the time. A lot of it, and I suppose this is now as good a time as any to bring this up, a lot of it was like Newgrounds flash games that were very reactionary, very much, you know, the thing about Newgrounds was, it still is to some extent because it's still around, but Newgrounds was this democratized platform where people could make whatever they want and put it up whenever they want. And so if you go back to directly after 9-11-2001 and in the intervening years during the real height of the Iraq war, if I want to put a cap on it, I would say until Saddam Hussein was executed, there was just a glut of these poorly made, visceral flash games attacking terrorists, attacking bin Laden, attacking Saddam. I mean, if I'm being charitable, I think it was people using Newgrounds as an outlet. So whereas Frosca made a very thoughtful game talking about what was happening, Newgrounds was the reactionary, I'm angry, I'm afraid, and I don't know what to do other than make a silly flash game where I kill terrorists. <laughs> and this is also, <laughs> I think, very understandable because 9-11 was arguably a traumatic incident for, well, at least the entirety of the US, potentially also the entirety of Western democracies. And is clearly when you are exposed to such a traumatic incident, when you're exposed to such a profound injustice, because so many entirely innocent people were killed or had to jump to their death, then there's a, it's a very organic and natural reaction that you would feel a sense of fury of kind of like, they can't get away with this which is the reason for why political support for a war on terror is then at first quite high, and declines over time, but also why people would go ahead and say like, hey, I know how to put together a flash game. Let's show them what's what. Let's at least make fun of them or let out some of that kind of internal tension that we experience. It was very much like you were saying how everybody saw it on television. All of a sudden, I mean, everyone had the internet and if they were feeling very strongly about it, they would put something out. You know, I've unlocked a memory in my head. There was a flash game on Newgrounds where it was it was a stick figure. It was a procedural game where you would just keep hurting the stick figure in bigger and badder ways, where at first you were just kind of poking it, but then you would unlock grenades, and then you would unlock nuclear weapons. And I remember one of the unlockable features was make the stick figure look like Bin Laden. And it was just, you know, just pure id trying to hurt someone <laughs> that, was, yeah. that was so scary in the public consciousness. Yeah, Newgrounds was a weird place back then. <laughs> Bin Laden was essentially the face that you would put on a dartboard. Yeah, exactly. Yes. It's <laughs> ramping that up to 11. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so those have been the general impacts on video game culture. And now we've already just spontaneously spoken about the serious games, but also the kind of like spontaneous engagement where people make games about 9-11 to release some tension or to make a political point. Next up, we're going to move on to games that were specifically altered because they were released in the context of 9-11. But before we do that, let's take a brief break. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And we are back talking about 9-11 and how it affected video games. And one way that we want to address now is video games that were specifically altered because they were bound to release shortly after 9-11. And probably the most influential example was GTA 3. GTA 3 by Rockstar Games did not only depict a very believable New York at the time, but it also was very influential in the open world genre and allowing you to basically go around and do pretty much anything you desire. The game was, of course, delayed, which is true for many of these titles that we're going to mention. But there were also characters and references removed that, quote, did not feel appropriate anymore, end quote. And they changed, that's what I found, the color and the design of police cars from blue and white to black and white. Because originally that would have been a reference to the NYPD and they changed to the colors of the LAPD to remove the close associations a little bit from someone basically wreaking havoc onto a city that looks very similar to New York City. Now it's just a bit problematic at the time. It's interesting where movies and TV shows had to deliberately remove reference to the Twin Towers. Like I think of um, two TV show openings, The Sopranos and Friends. They both removed it because they were prominent features in those openings. And with video games, especially something like GTA 3, it's almost more like you have to address a feeling where, as you say, you don't want to evoke havoc on New York City right after 9-11. So you just sort of change the feeling of the game a little bit. Nothing really too specific, except maybe the cop cars. But I mean, good on Rockstar for being thoughtful about that, because I, I do think they would have received some backlash. They probably would have. Yeah, it's just too early at the time. There were also games where the World Trade Center had specifically been removed. There's, for example, the title image of our episode, which shows an old cover art for Command & Conquer Red Alert 2. This strategy game, real-time strategy game, originally had a cover where you would see a crosshair that was aimed at the American flag and New York City. And it would show New York City in flames, including the World Trade Center, and once 9-11 happened, they said like, oh, <laughs> boy. Nope, we take it away. <laughs> <laughs> Let's exchange that. So what they did is they, they changed the cover art to depicting a crosshair that's aimed at a nuclear bomb to make it a little bit more abstract. But we, I found like an old scan of this original cover art and I put it in as a title image. I hope that's okay. I hope enough time has passed so that it's legitimately fine to use this as a cover image. There were also games such as Spider-Man 2 Enter Electro, where the final boss fight was supposed to take place on top of the World Trade Center. And then you, you played that. I did, yeah. I love those old Spider-Man games. And I remember, I'll have to ask my dad, although I don't think he'll remember either, but I, I have this memory, maybe it's a fake one, of him walking in and saying, is that the World Trade Center? <laughs> <laughs> so well, yeah, I remember this. It wouldn't be a far-fetched association because originally that was the case. Yes, the final battle was supposed to take place on the World Trade Center, but after the attacks, they made some changes. They changed the World Trade Center into a generic skyscraper. And the, the problem was still that if you were to look around during that boss fight, you would obviously see the skyline of New York City. So they obstructed the view by implementing a storm that would rage around this fight. Maybe that even contributed to its atmosphere. It's electro. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they, it, it would thematically make sense. And so I think it's not something that's usually considered to be of any negative impact to the game's quality. Probably one of the more subtle and 
smart changes that have been made. I should say, too, there is a strange sense of catharsis playing the new Spider-Man game and being able to scale the One World Trade Center, which is proudly featured in that game. So that's kind of a, a cool bookend to this Spider-Man story. Ah, right. I remember this now, now that you mention it, because there has been the One World Trade Center build, which is like just gigantic, very modern slash postmodern looking skyscraper, which is featured in Spider-Man, yes. Yeah, yep. Very beautifully rendered, and you can walk around it and climb it. So kind of a nice, hey, New York is doing a little better in this new Spider-Man game. Of course, the Microsoft Flight Simulator. Yeah. They also... <laughs> It'd be a big one. They also... <laughs> they removed the World Trade Center, and they even removed crash animations, because originally it was supposed to be the case that if you crash into the ground with Microsoft Flight Simulator, then you would have like an explosion animation, and they removed that because they felt like it would be inappropriate. A little distasteful. Metal Gear Solid 2, you've addressed the series before, they've actually made also some changes because there was, for example, uh, there was a boss fight where you would see American flags. They took those out. I want to get into more of these changes because they're interesting. But one thing I just want to bring up briefly is that Metal Gear Solid is such a cool... I, I mean, there's so much going on in it, right? So I'm not breaking new ground by saying that it's a great series. I want to say, though, Metal Gear Solid 2 came out at this very heated time, and the series continued to come out afterwards and began commenting on, in, almost in real time, how I assume Japan or the world viewed the American war machine at the time. It was, I think Kojima really capitalized on a game that was, you know, silly about, you know, uh, Liquid Snake and, you know, Foxhound and all of this. It became a commentary on the aughts and the early 2010s <laughs> in a really profound way. Very much so. It also anticipated a lot, I feel. Yeah, yeah. Because they, Metal Gear Solid 2 had been in development long before 9-11 happened, and they then very much engaged in this game with subject of terrorism, for example. There was a scene where Manhattan and the Statue of Liberty would be attacked by a terrorist organization, and they would even have a post-credit sequence originally that would show live action footage of the Twin Towers in New York. Both of these things were removed from the game, but the general theme of terrorism and warfare, that was really something that was very much at the pulse of its time. Not to mention, Raiden himself is a proxy for Solid Snake. So there's already commentary in this game about controlling someone that's not really there in order to act out these, you know, anti-terrorist measures. That game is prescient. There, I've used the word twice now. <laughs> <laughs> Very much, yeah. Raiden's name has also been changed in the Japanese version. Because originally, in the Japanese version, it would be spelled in katakana, which would indicate that it's a non-Japanese word. However, if you would read it out loud, then it would have a certain similarity to Bin Laden. And that's why they changed it. And I think they wrote his name in either in kanji or uh, in... in uh, Hidagana, I'm not quite sure. I have never played the Japanese version, but they were even so considerate to look at this and say like, hmm, there's a certain ring that doesn't sit quite right at yeah. the moment. Yeah, Raiden, Raiden, yeah. Exactly. That's really interesting too, just the level of, here's the Japanese scholar coming out, the level of, we want it to be written in katakana, as you say, to indicate that he is not Japanese, even though Raiden is a definite Japanese word. So it's a lot of deliberate foreignness and changing names to accommodate. We could do a whole other episode on that. Let's put a pin in that. <laughs> we should really, because yeah. I must say that I've admittedly never played Metal Gear Solid. Yes, mm. I know. Shame on me. <laughs> uh, but I'm very much willing to do that if we do some kind of, you know, analytical series on the Metal Gear games. Yes. All right. We've got another episode <laughs> idea in the bag. <laughs> yes. Well, there are also lots of games that were changed in smaller ways. Shinobi, for example, was also a Japanese game where at the beginning or somewhere in between, I'm not quite sure where the sequence happened, I wasn't able to find it, there would be a sequence where a character jumps out of the sky and then while falling onto the ground, rams their sword into a skyscraper mm. and then basically 
slides down that skyscraper to slow his fall and the building would then collapse afterwards. So like a very dramatic <laughs> thing. You can legitimately play it out like an anime in your head. Yeah. And once revisiting that sequence after 9-11 had happened, they were like, hmm, uh, maybe, we should, maybe we should not have any skyscrapers collapse for the time being. <laughs> well, we could name a whole lot more examples. We've actually got a fairly comprehensive list just to go through some more examples briefly, Siphon Filter 3 originally had an American flag on the cover art. They removed that to remove associations with the US directly. Eternal Darkness, Sanity's Requiem, one of the highly praised games of the... Was that the Wii era? No, that, no, was, that was GameCube. Before that, there was the GameCube era. Yes, one of the GameCube era. One of these standout GameCube titles. They had a section in which there was Arabic writing featured. They removed that. You, listener, can correct me if I'm wrong, but there's an infamous change to Ocarina of Time as well, where in the Spirit Temple, there is the symbol of Islam on blocks, and there's actually Arabic chanting that you can hear. And I'm pretty sure in subsequent prints of Ocarina of Time, they removed that for the same reason. Interesting, that because that exactly shows what we have already illustrated, how the entire domain of Middle Eastern culture, of Arabic culture, Arabic writing, the Arabic language became something that the West, in quotation marks, perceived as a threat, just its occurrence, even though it was in a completely different context where people were so sensitive to it that they would really not like to make this association in a game. Even the imagery, yeah. Or the idea of, in Eternal Darkness, just writing you know, there's no terrorist coding of just right. I mean, it's a nation's, it's, it's many it's nations writing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually, people actually write like they do yeah. that today as well. Yeah, Every yeah. day, people write <laughs> it, like didn't, it didn't just spring up <laughs> after 9-11, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, lastly, there's this game called True Crime New York City, which came out relatively shortly after 9-11. And they decided that they were just going to take out the World Trade Center and they fence off the area so that you can't go there. You know, in a way, that also kind of speaks to this thing that happened, I don't think deliberately, but these kind of um, accidental monuments to it, where there's, by making it this inaccessible kind of ghost area, its absence makes you think of it, right? And I think that whether intentional or not, that's a really interesting way of these developers almost processing this loss too, where we can't have this in here anymore. It's it's too painful to see. Yeah, it's, I think, pretty much something that became over time also a place of grief. Yeah. And uh, as such, it can, of course, also be used in video games. Absolutely. It's interesting to think about, this is the 21st anniversary, I think, this year. And like we mentioned earlier, a good chunk of both of our lifetimes. It's interesting to think about, you know, what are the next 20 years going to look like? Are things going to lighten up a little bit? Are things going to continue on this vein? At the moment, it doesn't look like things are going to lighten up. No. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully, what I would like to see, do you think we're at the point, Stefan, where video games could start addressing this in a way that's, as you kind of said, or you alluded to, almost therapeutic or a way to process it? Or are we not over the hump yet? I think they can. And there have also been instances where, for example, the German Secret Service actually mm. had a game being made where you play as a character that finds out that their brother has turned to radical Islamism and uh, you kind of discover some kinds of clues and the game sort of in a very, like, it's a little bit amateurishly made, teaches you about indications that people have committed to some form of radicalized ideas. They also have made a later adaptation that's more popular about someone succumbing to a Nazi ideology, neo-Nazi ideology. That's uplifting to me because I do think, I mean, we've talked about the that power of video games before where it's a way to dive into introspection and self-reflection. And it's tough with tragedy because you never really know when is it okay to dissect. And, you know, 21 years on, I mean, it's a major event that changed the world, but I would hope that soon, you know, we'll be able to do things like that where we can kind of, uh, you know, sort of like Frosca did very early, just kind of reflect on how this affected all of us in a way that I think video games could really powerfully do. Yeah, whether it's this early and immediate outlet that you would find in Flash games or the 
more nuanced and let's say politically considerate argumentation of something like September 12th or mm. unmanned or even the controversial spark that was caused by Modern Warfare 2 and its implementation of this airport sequence, yeah. the mission No Russian, where lots of civilians would be killed. This was something that also resembled this kind of like very complicated, orchestrated terrorist attack that would shock many. But it did spawn interesting and relevant conversations about the matter, which is why I do firmly believe that video games can serve in this processing of a collective trauma. Yes. Well, thank you so very much for listening to this episode. I'm sorry, we've just been kind of mellow today. Appropriate, though, I think, yeah. We're being appropriately mellow. We're going to change things a little bit for our next week's episode because that's when we'll be very silly. I suppose I should say, as the resident American of the podcast, to anyone affected by the 9-11 attacks in 2001, our hearts go out to you. I'm sure that today is going to be a very heavy day for you, but I'm thankful that we have communities that can talk about things like this and people that we can kind of lean on. So I hope that there's someone out there for you as well, if you're feeling that today. But thank you for listening. I know the mellowness was appropriate and frankly, a little cathartic for me too. I must say it helped me. I hadn't thought about it in that way before we started recording, but I realized while we were going that I am also a bit more affected by this than I had initially anticipated just because I have these childhood memories of uh, what had been going on. So yeah, strength goes out to everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode and we're going to talk again next week. Bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.